As a believer, reading God's Word is a critical part of your daily spiritual journey. And because it's so important, we've created a unique new resource to help you immerse yourself in biblical truth and open your eyes to all God's Word has for you. It's a free PDF download called The Word One-to-One that takes you on a guided journey through John chapter one. With biblical text and short commentary, each page provides insights that will strengthen your faith in an easy to read guided format. There's truly no other resource like this. Download your free PDF copy today at premierinsight.org forward slash resources. That's premierinsight.org forward slash resources. Understand, defend, and share your faith with confidence. This is Unapologetic from Premier Unbelievable. Thank you for joining us on Unapologetic. I'm Ruth Jackson. And before we hear from today's guest, just a quick reminder to visit premierunbelievable.com for more shows, articles, and resources. And if you register or sign up for our newsletter there, you can get yourself a plethora of free ebooks. But now for today's show. I'm joined by the wonderful John Swinton, Professor in Practical Theology and Pastoral Care at Aberdeen University. John spent 16 years as a psychiatric nurse before becoming an ordained minister in the Church of Scotland. John, welcome. Thank you so much for joining us on the show today. No, it's nice to be here. It's nice to meet you. Well, John, I feel like we're going to cover so many things and lots of them would sort of probably be a podcast in and of itself. So we're just going to see how much we can get through today because you've had such a fascinating life. Um, But if if it's okay with you, I'd love to go right back to the beginning just to kind of learn a little bit about who John Swinton is. So what was your experience of God growing up as a child, John? Well, my, my father was a minister in the Church of Scotland in, uh, in Glasgow. And so I was always brought up in, in, the, in the church. And every Sunday I was made to go to church and I got bored stiff. <laughs> it was just, it was just terrible. And it's worse, like, because if your father's a pastor, you've got a lot to kind of live down. They say that ministers' sons and pastors' sons tend to be the most rebellious, and there's just probably some truth in that. So, yeah, I was. I'm also, I'm also to... a pastor's kid, so I um, hear you. I hear you. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so if there was that, like, and uh-huh. then this, this fact that I'm constantly being programmed to be bored or associate church with boredom. Um, so I I never really uh, understood. Well, I understood everything, like in my head, um, but I never really made a commitment until way on late in life. And it was interesting because what what made the difference was I was working in a little town just outside of um, Aberdeen called Port Soy uh, when I was doing my nursing training. Uh, and one day, one, one Saturday evening, me and some guys went out in Aberdeen at that time, went out uh, and had a wild night in the town. And then we come back home and all the things that young men do. And then... I met them again when I was working up in Port Soy, and they all they all had Bibles under their arms, like so. Uh-huh. I had this strange contrast between this wild night in Aberdeen and then this complete change in their lives. Um, uh, and it was at that point I realised that uh, maybe I have to think differently. So I had all the theory, you know, because I I kind of been shaped and formed in terms of knowledge, 
But it wasn't until I saw the transformation in people's lives that I could actually see that theory had an embodiment. And so that was the beginning of my um, my Christian life. In my, it would have been in my early 20s, probably, by the time I got to that stage. Um, and, I mean, it's, it's, it's not been a straightforward journey all the way through. But that was the turning point. <clears throat> and I, I imagine that's maybe why I ended up being a practical theologian, you know, thinking through the importance of the way you, you embody your, the gospel as well as the way that in which you, uh, you think about it. Well, I want to talk much more about your practical theology in a little bit, but I guess if we're going kind of chronologically um, oh, yes. through your life, you, you spent 16 years as a psychiatric nurse. Why did you want to go into that, or was it just kind of something you fell into? Well, I, when I left school, I became a scientist uh, very briefly because scientists need to understand mathematics or be good at mathematics and statistics and never useless. Like. So <laughs> I got fired very quickly. And, uh, and so I was trying to think what I wanted to do. And then, I, so I, what I decided to do was I'd, uh, I'd drive a van. And so I, drive, I drove a van for, I don't know, a few months. It was great because it was, I, I just enjoyed it. I could get up in the morning, I could do my job, I see the beautiful countryside around the northeast of Scotland, and then I go home at night. I don't have to worry about it. I don't have to think about it. <clears throat> take it home with me. And it was really good. Um, but I, I didn't feel I could maybe do that forever. So what happened was my, well, my best friend at that time was a guy called David Adams. And he decided to become a psychiatric nurse. So I thought, oh, I know what I'll do. I'll become a psychiatric nurse. <laughs> and I, and I, that was my <laughs> that was my vocational call. Like, what am I going to do? Well, he's doing it, so I'll do it. Um, but it turned out to to be vocational in the end because uh, I loved it, uh, and I, I still can. I still work with nurses. I still am involved in the whole area. And so, whilst it was maybe for me just I'm stuck for something to do, I actually underneath that God was doing something interesting. And after a good chunk of time being a psych psychiatric nurse, you then followed in the footsteps of your father, didn't you? And you got ordained as a minister in the Church of Scotland. Did that just sort of come out of nowhere? Did your, did your new best friend decide to become a minister? Or was, or was it more of a kind of well, funny you should say that. <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, that, that was more gradual. And so I, I nursed it for many, many years. And I really enjoyed nursing, so I, I I didn't have any particular reason to move on. But I did begin to get a, a, a call, and if you like, or a sense that I, I I wanted to move on, not because I was dissatisfied, but because I was just I wanted to study theology, and my because I had been involved with the church, it just seemed like a natural progression, and so I uh, I I came to the stage where I had to go to university. So the way that nurses were trained in these these days, we were trained in college. So we were college-based nurses um, uh, rather than university-based nurses. So I then had to go to university and, and do everything that you need to do in university. My thought was that I was being called into chaplaincy because, as you say, my, my, my dad was a chaplain. It's not to suggest that chaplaincy is somehow genetic. But the... So, but the uh, it just seemed a natural progression from being a healthcare professional to being uh, a chaplain. And I did work in chaplaincy for a number of years when I was doing my PhD. But as soon as I got to university, I knew that it was practical theology that I wanted to, to, to be involved. My first lecture, strange, my first lecture in practical theology, which had not very much to do with very much, I knew that that was the space that I 
wanted to to work in for the rest for the rest of my life. Um, uh, and that's the way it turned out. Well, and as you say, you worked a little bit as a chaplain, and one of those things was um, a, a community chaplain. What what is that? Uh, was a community mental health chaplain that you worked off as for a little yeah. bit? Well, yeah, I was a community mental health chaplain, which means I was working um, with people who were leaving long term uh, psychiatric care uh, uh, to, uh, and into the community because it was around about the time where the community care was the, the kind of slogan from the government. My job was to help people to find a spiritual home in that sense. Well, not in that sense. In that sense. Um, uh, which was a great job um, uh, for a number of reasons. But one of the downsides was that you very quickly discover that there's no such thing as community, particularly for those people who are perceived to be different. And that also applies to Christian communities who can be equally as excluded and equally as stigmatic as anywhere else. Uh, and so you can talk about community care, but it's, the practice is much more complicated. So my, my task was to work with people uh, and to help them to find a, a church home, a place where they could be uh, accepted. And uh, uh, it was fascinating because I, my, the same time as I was doing that, I was doing my, my PhD, on, which was focused on um, the role of Christian friendship or Christ-like friendship. Uh, in relation to uh, offering care to people with schizophrenia. Wow. And so between these two things, my, my work, which was doing that, and then my reflective work, which was thinking about, you know, what, what exactly is Christ-like friendship and why are we not showing it very often? It was a good combination for me to be able to produce <clears throat> what I produced. But more than that, it was a foundation for my, my later ministry and my later vocation. So why do you think chaplaincy is so essential? I guess either in that sort of community sphere or you've also done some chaplaincy in, in specifically in hospitals, haven't you? Why, why is it so important that we have chaplains in, in, I guess, all areas? I think it's very important because chaplains uh, chaplains ask questions that other people don't ask. Like, so the whole the, 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 the central, central um, aspect of chaplaincy is to... Um, introduce spirituality and help people to see what that means and, and to understand spiritual care. And if you want to think about what's the kind of spirituality you might think about in the healthcare context, you think about four questions, which would be, who am I? Where do I come from? Where am I going to? And why? Right? So that's basically the, the question that all religious traditions try to answer um, in different ways. But when you get a diagnosis, right? so, so something like... Um, say, a diagnosis of dementia or a diagnosis of cancer, these questions become really, really sharp. Who yeah. am I? Where do I come from? Where am I going to and why? Suddenly, the ways that you used to answer them previously just go out the window. And how do you how do you wrestle with that change of identity? You're no longer who you were before. Now you're a cancer uh, patient. And then what the best you can get is to be in remission because cancer never really goes in that sense. You always have that identity as somebody in remission. Um, and that, although... All healthcare professionals are kind of aware of that. Chaplains take that into the healthcare system and say, this is really, really important. You need to think about that. Um, both in terms of your your um, relationships on a day-to-day basis and your, your own self-identity and also in relation to, to God. Well, let's talk a little bit about spiritual care because that's an area where you have written huge amounts um, about. And I would highly recommend that people read the journals that you've written and the books that you've written because there's so much wisdom in this. And it's such an important area that's so often forgotten about. But 
how I mean you've touched on this already, but how would you define spiritual care? What is spiritual care? I think spiritual care is simply recognizing that irrespective of the context in which you're in, it's a person that you're dealing with. And so one of the dangers in a highly technicalized healthcare system, for example, is that you get so wrapped up in specialisms that you know, one person looks at the head, one person looks at the arm, and so, so it, a person's always being broken down in that sense. Nothing wrong with that. You know, if, if, I, if I have a problem with my kidney, I want a kidney specialist. But the, ten, the, the danger there is that the whole system just becomes fragmented in that sense. So I think at one level, spirituality helps you to hold together all these different dimensions so that even if you are a specialist uh, in a particular area, you're always open to realizing the importance of the, the whole person in that situation and the implications of that whole person for your specialty and, and vice versa. So I think it, it, it's countercultural in that sense. It, it breaks away from individualism and away from specialism and helps us to, to see people as people. Yeah. And do you think that spirituality is, is an area that is generally recognized within healthcare or does it kind of depend uh, on, you know, do, do nurses have a different response, say, to doctors? Or is it, is it? I mean, what's the kind of general opinion in healthcare about spirituality and spiritual care? Well, there's a lot of research that's done, and it's certainly, it's very often now incorporated in the in the curriculum for um, nurses and for doctors, although it tends to be a, a matter of choice rather than part of the, the core curriculum. So I think it's fair to say that uh, spirituality, spiritual care is now a recognised dimension of the healthcare process. Of course, precisely what people mean by spirituality is much more complicated. Yeah. Um, so we all use the same word, but it very often has quite different meanings. But I think in, in general, there is a, 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 an integration of spirituality into healthcare. Um, sometimes good, sometimes bad, but it's certainly on the agenda. And again, you've you've sort of touched on this, but but why is spirituality so important when we're dealing with um, you know the healthcare people who are not not very well or going through difficult things? Why is spirituality such an important part of all of that? I think just to, to kind of almost repeat myself in some senses, because of the kinds of questions that people ask. So, so if you think about an end of life situation, you know you discover you have a terminal illness and you're you're at a stage where you're moving towards the end of your life and you're asking these big questions about who am I, where do I come from, etc. Um, you don't want somebody to give you a psychological answer uh, or, or uh, simply a, an answer that relates to the technicalities of your diagnosis. There's another, there are other questions in there that are fundamentally important. Um, and I think that's why spirituality is so important because in principle, it enables us to answer questions that perhaps other um, healthcare professionals can't answer or can't answer in the same kind of way. And this might be a really difficult question to answer and it might look different for different cases, but what does good spirituality, good spiritual care look like for some of these patients, do you think? Well, I always think it's, it's, there's, a, there's a conversation within healthcare, uh, spirituality and healthcare, as whether... Uh, Spirituality has to do with a series of competencies, that is, things that you do, new te new skills that you have to learn in order to to um, uh, engage in spiritual care, or whether it's a matter of formation, whether you just have to be shaped and formed so that you can see things slightly differently. My general sense would be that uh, 
probably healthcare professionals have got enough competencies that they have to learn <laughs> another set they may not be happy with. I, I'm, I, but I, I realize other people have different opinions to that. So it's the issue of formation I'm interested in. And formation, at least part of that task, is, is to help us to see the way in which our day-to-day tasks have spiritual implications. So if you think about it uh, this way, think about something like uh, pain, right? So are you in a situation where somebody's in great pain? What uh, does pain do? Well, pain separates you from yourself, it separates you from your, your neighbor, and it separates you from God. You know, if, if you even do something as simple as banging your toe on the bed and more, that's all you can think about. You can't think about anything else. Yeah. And if, so if you get a big pain that takes over the whole of your body in that sense, that's all you can think about. And so pain is the enemy of community in that, in that sense. And so when you give somebody pain relief, it, at one level, is a spiritual act or a spiritual practice, rather, because you're reconnecting them with themselves, with other people, and ultimately with God. And so when you begin to see that these day-to-day practices, even something as apparently technical as given a, a pharmaceutical intervention, actually has spiritual implications, you can begin to see that you can integrate that way of thinking into the, the, the normality of the things that you do um, every day. And do you think spirituality and sort of good spiritual practices, spiritual care, looks different within a Christian worldview, or, or are there lots of similarities um, across kind of spiritual care, whatever um, worldview you're coming from? Uh, the spiritualities and and the, the uh, sorry, there's commonalities uh, mm. and there are differences. So the commonality would be. If you think about it, but it maybe theologically is the simplest way to, to, to do this. Look, human beings uh, are made in the image of God, right? So there's there's lots of um, debate in Christian history about what the image is. Some people think it's reason. Some people think it's other things. Right? But probably the most helpful way of thinking about the image of God is that relationship, right? So God... <clears throat> um, one of the interesting things about the Genesis account of creation is that God creates everything. He brings his spirit, his ruach, into everything, and everything things come alive. And it's the same spirit that is blown into everything uh, that, that brings us all into existence in that sense. The only difference is the thing you see in the Genesis account of creation is that God wants to commune with human beings. He wants to have a relationship with human beings. It strikes me is that that relationship, that relationality is, is built in. So that's the way we should be. We should be in right relationship with God, right relationship with one another. So relationality becomes what the image of God is. So at that level, it's very clear that a, a Christian practitioner or whatever context you're in, um, uh, part of our call, part of our vocation is to enter into good relationship, to care for people in that, in that sense, to recognize the image of God in other people and to, and to help that that to flourish through the things that you do. And you can do that with all people, just through the, the beauty of friendship and, and care. Um, the specifics that a Christian might want to be to bring to the situation is, you obviously, you have a tradition. You have an understanding of who God is. You have specifics of prayer and contemplation and things that actually brings spiritual relief, release and, and healing. And I don't mean by that curing, uh, 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 to, to people who share that faith in quite particular ways. So there's, a, there's these particular 
spiritual practices that would be unique to to the Christian tradition. And then that more general way of caring for one another, which is part of our tradition, but is manifests itself in a slightly different way. You're listening to Unapologetic from Premier Unbelievable. Do you think religious belief and um, sort of spirituality can help with the healing process? I guess, depending on what you mean by healing. I know you've done some work um, among women with breast cancer, kind of particularly in this area. Uh, The the key is uh, what you mean by healing. Mm -hmm. So very often we think about um, healing as being the eradication of something. (laughs) And that's something to do with the kind of model of health that we have, certainly within Western healthcare um, uh, systems, is that health is the absence of illness, right? So I, you, I come to you. You have a a, a legion on your legion on your chest. I, as a doctor, I use my technical skills to get rid of that, and then you move from illness to health. Um, and that's that that's that, that's that's fine. That, that's another right. Everybody wants to 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 find cure in that sense. However, uh, there are certain things that uh, will never be cured in that sense. You know, if you live with rheumatoid arthritis at the moment, you're going to live with that forever. If you live with endurance schizophrenia, you're more than probably going to live with that forever. So does that mean that people have to be ill all the time? And that's a question. So that's the way I think about that. And I've given a bit of thought in relation to how we can frame that as, as Christians. So the way that I, I think about it is, if you think about the story of the woman with the issue of blood in the Gospels, right? So she <clears throat> has this condition that alienates us from society and it makes her effectively a non-person because she can't speak to her community, she can't go to the temple and so on and so forth. So alienated from people and from God. So she makes her way through the, the, the crowd and she touches Jesus' robe and immediately she no longer has this condition. But then... Jesus looks around and says, those powers going out of me. And they, then they have this conversation. At the end of that uh, conversation, she says, go. Jesus says, go, your faith has healed you. And you're thinking, no, but she's already been healed. But then you realize she's already been cured. The healing came when she met Jesus. And the healing came when Jesus enabled her to come back into her community in that sense. So I think there's a difference between healing and curing. Healing is reconnection. In this case, reconnection with Jesus. Reconnection, but it could be reconnection with yourself in that sense. Uh, curing is getting rid of something. The two are not, not the same. And the two are not necessarily required in order for us to live well. Now let's, I, I want to talk a little bit more about suffering. But before we do that, I want to just go back to some of the stuff you were saying around practical theology. So we, we've oh, heard yes. a little bit about why you wanted to go into practical theology, but but what is practical theology? If if you could give a kind of brief definition of what it is. Well, practical, practical theology looks at the way in which the things that the church does, the things that the church believes, the things that the church practices, um, interact with what God is doing in the world. Uh, and also the things that are happening in the world, how we understand them, theologically. And so it's what it really does is helps us to take situations, experiences, place them against the tradition and say, how are we to understand this in the light of what we know about God? So for example, in my work on 
d- dementia, um, you may ask the question, um, here's somebody who's losing their memory. And here's a tradition that says that we need to know certain things in order to find salvation. But what does it mean when we, what does it mean to love God when we've forgotten who God is? And that then gets you into a really interesting theological adventure that helps you to know and understand God more fully, but also to understand how to practice more carefully and more compassionately. So that's how practical theology works. And I guess um, that raises the question then of like how important it is for the church to be speaking to the academy and the academy to be speaking to the church. That's obviously something you feel really passionate about. Why is that so important? And I guess even even more crucially, how do we make sure that they are speaking to one another and influencing one another? Well, I I think that theology is for the church. This is my opinion. Uh, And I recognise not everybody feels that way. Theology is for the church. And theology has a, a particular purpose, which is to facilitate and enable understanding and love of God in order that we can understand and love our neighbor and ourselves more fully. So I think that intersection between what we know and how we understand God and what the way that we live that out within community is fundamental to what theology is. Right? And I think likewise for the church, uh, it's important to understand and know why and how we believe certain things and why it's important that we know and believe certain things. You know, sometimes I've had students coming through here saying things, they say things like, no, um, all I really, I, I don't really need all this theology stuff. I really just need to get in there and get the gospel proclaimed. And I was thinking, you know, if, you, if, if I was, if I had a brain tumor, right, and the neurologist came in and says, I don't know any of that theoretical stuff. I just <laughs> want to get into your head and get that stuff out of there. You're a bit too chuffed. Like, but people seem to be happy with that for the, when it comes to people's eternal salvation. <laughs> so there's, there's a difficulty there. So that interface, I, th- I think, between the academy uh, uh, and the church is fundamental for the proclamation of the, the faithful proclamation of the gospel and the faithful living out of the gospel. So, but I guess, how does that work practically? How, how can we practically help our theology to inform our practice? By thinking about what we do, right? So, so you know, uh, if you think about um, even something similar, simple like, well, no, far from simple, like t- the, the, the Eucharist, right? At one level, the Eucharist is a bunch of people sitting around eating bread and drinking wine or drinking whatever it is that you decide to drink. And that's not not that. Like, but when you think about it uh, uh, theologically, you're taken right back to the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus and the implications of that for where you are just now. Because when you remember who Jesus is in the present, you are opening yourself to the Spirit and you are transformed. So when you begin to think deeply about this, this, the practices, the things that the church does, you suddenly find there's a huge, rich meaning that's, that's un, unfurled in their lab. Another example would be something like friendship. You know, think about think about the nature of friendship. The way that friendship tends to, well, two things. One, uh, in John's Gospel, Jesus says uh, to his disciples, I no longer call you servants, I call you friends, right? So in saying that, 
the nature of friendship is radically trans. The, the discipleship is radically transformed. So now you and I, we, who follow Jesus, are friends of Jesus. But think about the nature of Jesus' friendship. No, the principle of the incarnation, God becoming a human being, is that God becomes a human being. God, who is completely different from us, becomes a human being and offers friendship to the marginalized, to the prostitute, to the sinners, to the those people whom society pushes away, in that sense. Those people who are so unlike him. Contrast that with the kind of friendships that very often we have today, where many of our, if you look at many of our, our, our socials, networks, people are more or less the same as us. We share the same interests, we share the same kind of, both the same places. And if you're a Facebook person, you you shape all your friendships. <laughs> so you can really look in your Facebook page and see yourself. Yeah. It's wonderful. <laughs> but the community of the Friends of Jesus has a different kind of friendship. And that friendship is fundamentally important. Because otherwise you just get sucked into ordinary friendships. So if we don't think deeply about even things as simple as Eucharist and simple as friendship, then we end up being unfaithful and not noticing it. And I guess one area which is huge when it comes to kind of theology and the practical outworking of that is suffering. And obviously, as someone who has worked in the healthcare, that's something that, you know, I would imagine you thought about quite a lot. And I guess particularly when we come to kind of end of life care, it raises so many questions about God, his existence, his goodness, all of that. I mean, how do you respond to that both as a chaplain and ordained minister and a theologian? Would your, would your kind of response be the same in both instances? Yeah, the question of suffering is obviously one of the most difficult questions. Like, but I mean, the first thing I would say was, I'd much rather have suffering and try to wrestle with who God is, than to have suffering and not have anything other than suffering. So I, I think it is an important question, but I think it's important we don't begin by just pushing God away because that that's the, a step into absolute hopelessness. And um, however, I am not convinced that we can explain suffering. And sometimes when we try to explain suffering, we make it worse. You know, you lose your child and, and people may say some things like, oh, it's all right, he or she will be safe with Jesus. Now, that, of course, is true, but you're not ordinary, your natural response is, well, I'd rather he was safe with yeah. me. Yeah. And so sometimes when you try to explain things, that you, you make things worse. And, you know, even if we turn to to scripture, very often people look, for example, at the the book of Job as a way of understanding suffering, and there are things in, in Job to be understood. Um, but how how does Job's suffering begin with God's gambling habits? Yeah. So that's not a great place to begin. <laughs> that God enters into a wager with Satan, and you know, that's not going to be very comforting for very many people. So my position is, you're better not to try to explain it. Because what I think the gospel in particular gives us is ways of resisting and dealing with suffering rather than ways of trying to explain it. You know, we're, we're modern people. We, we, we tend to try to turn mysteries into puzzles and solve them because that's kind of what we do. And living with mystery is very, very difficult. But I think it's better that way. Yeah. I think it's better to take the, 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 those modes of resistance that are given to us in the gospel and live faithfully even in the midst of suffering, which is what we're kind of seeing in the life of Jesus and Paul, um, uh, than to try to say, well, this is why it's happening. Yeah. 
So I guess it, this might be a really difficult question to answer, but how do you personally still, um, how are you still able to believe in God when you must have, both as a pastor and a theologian and, and obviously as a nurse, seen so much suffering? Well, because because I don't, uh, I don't have an understanding of the Christian life as being free of suffering. I don't have an understanding of the Christian life as just being a quest for happiness. You know, uh, if you look at the um, uh, look at the look at the gifts of the Spirit that Paul lays out in Galatians, he uh, doesn't name happiness as a gift of the Spirit. So happiness is nice; we all like happiness, um, but it's not a gift of the Spirit. And that's it. So, but joy is a gift of the Spirit. Paul says, and joy incorporates suffering. You know, if you look at the way joy works itself out in, in, in the scripture, suffering is part of that. So is happiness, so is, is uh, are these ecstatic occasions, but also so is suffering, so is lostness, so is darkness. It's all part of joy. And I guess, I mean, I, I don't, I've never really sat there and thought about the answer to your question, but I guess that's probably one reason why I, I'm able to, to, to negotiate, which is a very, what is a very difficult um tension within life about what the, the nature of suffering. But I think if we think about the nature of joy, it's a beginning point. How would you respond to people that say that actually God is just kind of a psychological crutch for people who are suffering, that maybe he doesn't really exist, but he's just like a nice thing to hold Fair. on to when people are in the midst of this awful thing? Yeah, well, I... I don't really have a huge problem with, with psychological crutches. Uh, you know, if I break my leg uh, and I, somebody get, gives me a crutch, that's fantastic. <laughs> but, the, 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 you know, the, but that doesn't mean to say that the crutch is not real. It's just really, really helpful. Crutch is not going to make my leg better, but it's really, really helpful. And so I think, I, I, I don't, I mean, I think if you're trying to say that's all it is, then, then clearly that's not the case. And it's, but if you're trying to say that people can use it as a crutch, as a way of helping through, as you limp through difficult situations, then I think that's fine. Uh, so the, the whole idea of the crutch is there's, there's, there's multiple, <laughs> multiple dimensions. But and at the end of the day, there are times when you and I need a crutch, be that psychological or physical. I'm happy with that. But that's not all it is, and crutches don't fix you. John, we're going to talk a little bit um, in, in later episodes about uh, some of your work with kind of people with mental health struggles and learning difficulties in, in dementia and all of that. But, but just as we kind of wrap this episode up talking about suffering, how do we support those people who feel like, I think because of their suffering, that they have just been completely abandoned by God? What should our response be in that situation? I think we need to preach and teach slightly differently, right? So... To go back to what I was saying about happiness, I, you know, certainly when I, I spend time with people with um, depression, for example, the way in which we function in church, sometimes particularly in worship, where everybody has to be happy, and happiness becomes almost like an, an act of faith, a, a mark of faith, becomes highly problematic for you. Not just when you've got depression, but through a lot of different things. And sometimes we forget that there's a kind of like a spirituality of darkness that runs all the way through Scripture. So at one level, the Scripture tells us God will never abandon us. And yet Isaiah tells us that God sometimes hides. You think, well, how can you hold on to that tension? Uh, 
the Psalms of lament uh, are full of that sense of being lost. And in Psalm 88, this finishes dead. Darkness is my only companion. You think, well, what's that about? And when Dietrich Bonhoeffer talk, talks about the Psalms as a prayer book of the Bible, you think, what kind of a prayer is that? Darkness is my only companion. And even on the, uh, the cross, you see the same dynamic. Jesus uh, cries, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, what's, what's really interesting about Jesus' cry there is the change in language. Now, so before, it was, he was, you know, it was Abba, Father. And it's something really close and intimate. But now in this midst of this time of horrible pain and suffering and alienation and lostness, it's God. There's a distance there even in the language. Um, but for, even for the psalmist, it was a prayer. Darkness is my only companion. For Jesus, it was a prayer. The, the problem wasn't a lack of uh, faith. It was a feeling of disconnection. And people very often feel disconnected. But that's not the same thing as thinking your, 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 your faith is failing, you're not doing enough. Because if Jesus can feel disconnected on the cross, then it's, it's, it makes it much easier for us to, to, to recognize that maybe this feeling of disconnection at this moment in time isn't really a crisis of faith. It's just the way we are. And that spirituality of disconnection, of lostness, is part of our tradition. And we need to recognize that. And so if we actually help people to see that that's part of, what's, part of our tradition, when they hit that difficult point, then it's much easier to th it's much easier for them not to be thinking, oh, this is, a, this is a, a, something I've done wrong. It's something, this crisis I have in terms of my belief. It's not necessarily that at all. It's simply that's the way that human beings are at certain moments in time. And even for Jesus, that was the case. John, this is all so helpful. Um, thank you so much for joining us today. We're going to be talking a little bit more about this in the next episode where we're talking specifically about Holy Week. And, and like I said, we're also going to delve more deeply into the kind of mental health struggles and all of that. But thank you so much. That's all we've got time for today. Oh, good. Welcome. Thank you for joining us on Unapologetic with me, Ruth Jackson. As always, you can find out more about our guest through the links with today's show. Please do let us know what you think of the programme by emailing unbelievable at premier.org.uk or you can get in touch on social media. And don't forget to visit premierunbelievable.com for more shows, articles and resources. Thank you for listening and see you next week. You've been listening to Unapologetic. For more shows, resources and our newsletter, visit premierunbelievable.com. Welcome to Cape and Ray Hall, nestled in the beautiful landscapes between England's national parks. As a Bible school, we offer short-term courses aimed at fostering your spiritual growth and living in a community. Our historic manor house has something for everyone. You can enjoy indoor and outdoor adventures, connect with students from around the world, and learn how to deepen your relationship with Jesus Christ. Search Cape and Ray England for more information.